Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this episode is about boxing legend Muhammad Ali. But before I play that to you, let me just uh, mention the sponsor for uh, the podcast, and that is italki. Um, if you want to speak English to native speakers, or if you want to practice, even get English lessons, how do you do it? You need to find people to talk to. If you don't have access to native speakers or qualified teachers uh, where you live, then you can do it on the internet, and italki is a great way to do that. Um, um, just go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk to get started. And uh, you will also get a $10 uh, voucher when you buy some lessons um, if you're a Lepster and you go through my website. Um, and by the way, I've had a couple of messages from listeners who wonder when the voucher is sent to them. So uh, often it takes a couple of days. If you if you buy some lessons, a couple of days later, italki will then send you the voucher. So you don't it doesn't apply immediately. You just have to wait a couple of days for the voucher to be sent to you, but it will be sent. If you've got any other questions about this, um, then just, you know, let me know. You can contact me through my website. Okay, now let's get started with this new episode. And here is the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello there. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Uh, it's very nice to be talking to you today. I hope that you're well. Um, whatever you're doing out there in podcast land, travelling on public transport or just walking around living your life, um, or maybe sitting at home. I don't know what you're doing, but uh, I hope that you're enjoying yourself now that you're listening to a new episode of the podcast. Here, it's a cool Wednesday morning in Paris as I record this episode. I say cool, I mean just the temperature. Um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty chilly outside today. Uh, it's grey and uh, not very inviting out there. So the conditions really are perfect for staying in and recording podcast episodes. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a Wednesday morning. It's it's early. It's about 9am in the morning. I don't normally record episodes this early. Um, but uh, I decided to start early today because I've got lots of other things to do once I've finished this. So I'm starting early, getting the podcast recorded early, so I can then move on to do other things. Um, so again, in this episode, I'm talking about sport on the podcast today. This time, it's the sport of boxing, as I talk about arguably the greatest boxer we've ever had, and in fact, one of the greatest people of the last 50 years or so, Muhammad Ali. I've got a lot to say about the man, so I suspect this could be another long episode of the podcast. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, a lot of my episodes are quite long these days. Now, most of you seem to be fine with that, which is cool. Um, now, I'll, I'll say that with these episodes, the ones that are pretty long, you are getting a tremendous amount of English exposure. And that is one of the key ingredients in gaining proper English with a wide range of vocabulary and accurate listening skills, which really helps your English in other areas 
such as your sort of understanding of pronunciation and also your own production of English in your speaking. Um, you can learn a lot from episodes like this, even if I'm not explicitly teaching language to you. Um, so I, re- I recommend that you listen closely, get into the story that I'm going to tell you in this episode. Just really try and get into the story, pay attention and be curious about what's going to happen next while noticing the language that I'm using to describe the events in Ali's life and also the specific details of his fights that I'm going to talk about. Um, pay attention to every single word while also getting drawn into the story of one of the most extraordinary people of recent years. Um, look out not only for language for describing the narrative of Ali's life story, but also look out for language um, used for specific descriptions of boxing, which will include some complex language to describe things like body positions, movements and technique. Okay, that's quite complicated stuff to talk about. Just the general mechanics of boxing and describing the 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 moments of a fight um, in some detail. That's fairly complicated, and it will involve probably some complex descriptive language, probably lots of prepositions and maybe some phrasal verbs and things. So watch out for all of those things. Now, I have planned this episode quite carefully, and I took some time to do it. Um, you'll see almost every word of this episode transcribed on my website. So this is one of those one of those ones that I've prepared in advance. Um, so you can you can actually read the transcript. I'd say it's probably about 90, I don't know, 95, 90, 99% transcribed. There may be moments where I go off script a little bit, like like now, for example. Um, but uh, you can see almost all of this transcribed, and I strongly recommend that you go to the page for this episode and check that out. Um, with the transcript, you could read along with me or use the transcript to help you learn English in lots of ways, okay? All right, so that's my pep talk about learning English with this episode. Let's now get stuck in to this subject. So we lost another great person this year. It seems that 2016 is a bad year for losing great people, great public figures. Um, and we lost another one this year, uh, Muhammad Ali. Now, since Ali died, I have had quite a lot of messages from listeners saying to me things like this. Basically, Luke, talk about Muhammad Ali. I'm waiting for you to talk about Muhammad Ali or... Uh, you know, I can't wait for episodes about Muhammad Ali, that kind of thing. So it seems that lots of you would like me to talk about this subject. And okay, uh, that's fine. I would actually love to talk about this subject because I am a, a, a big fan of Ali, um, especially his boxing. And actually, this is one of my favourite topics. I've never talked about boxing on the podcast before, but I do have an interest in the sport and in martial arts in general. And particularly, I'm particularly interested in several fights involving Ali, specific fights that he was involved in. Um, so I'm more than happy to talk about this in a special episode um, of this podcast to celebrate the life of the people's champion, the one and only Muhammad Ali, who truly was the greatest. And yes, I do consider boxing as a martial art. Um, I think it's a discipline. And even though there are rules to boxing, 
that you don't necessarily have in other martial arts. I think that true fighters understand that boxing can still be considered a martial art. Um, on the subject of fighting, you know, I don't really believe in war. I don't really believe in violence. And I generally don't like fighting, as you've heard you know, in previous episodes of this podcast, you know, I talk, I've talked about that sort of thing before. So I don't really, I'm not really into real violence. Um, I don't mind violence in films or in computer games. And I understand that boxing is is genuinely, you know, a violent sport. But I am, I'm still interested in boxing. I think it's, as I said, I think it's a discipline. I think it's a remarkably complex sport. It's not just a brutal, basic slugging match it's a lot more complex than that and i think at the highest level boxing involves incredible levels of technique strategy and skill and also it's a huge mental challenge i think winning a a, a boxing match at the highest level is a huge mental challenge as well as a physical one it's not just physical thumping each other there's all sorts of complex mental things going on in a boxing match now i would try doing it I would actually try boxing, and I've often thought about doing it, but I just know what would happen if I actually started doing it, right? Probably what would happen is I'd go down to the gym, and I'd have a go at the punching bags, pam, 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 you know? I'd get into hitting the bags. It's easy to hit the bags because they don't, they don't hit you back. So, you know, you're all right when you're hitting bags, pam, 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 you know, um, th- that would be fun. And I'd probably get into some of the techniques, there's different punching techniques and things. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to hit that, you know, that sort of punching bag that uh, is sort of suspended quite high up. There's a board and the bag hangs down and you go, you know, you know that one. I'd like to do that. That looks brilliant. I think I'd probably get into punching the, the bags because they don't punch back. Um, but as soon as I got into... As soon as I got into a genuine fight situation, I'm sure that all it would take would be one punch on my nose and I'd be like, okay, okay, stop. Stop, that's enough. I can't I can't take the punch on my nose. Not the face! You know. So instead, I'm far more comfortable just talking about it, reading about it, and also studying fights on video than actually getting punched in my in the face myself um that doesn't really appeal to me of course so yeah i'm i'm one of these armchair enthusiasts you could you could say um so it's worth mentioning i think that boxing is a controversial sport and there are arguments to say that it should be banned or controlled further that is a complicated argument and i understand that the point of the game is to try and hit your competitor and often to knock them out But I think that as long as the sport is properly regulated and the boxers themselves know exactly what they're doing, then I think it's up to them, really. And if they're happy to do it and and to take the risks, then fair enough. That's their choice. There is a lot to be gained, I think, also for young people taking up the sport. I think it can give people a focus, a discipline, and also it's a way of earning money for many of these people as as a professional. You know, lots of people from many different communities have boxing as an option and they don't necessarily have many options available to them so boxing can provide them with a an outlet uh, an option for for um the discipline and also for actually making some money 
many of the people who take up boxing come from difficult backgrounds, and going to boxing rings to fight and socialise is actually better than fighting on the street and getting involved in other kinds of trouble. So I'm kind of okay with boxing, even though I understand that it, it, it is a, quite a dangerous sport. Um, but, you know, you take, you take, your, take the risk, I suppose, if, um, uh, if you're involved in it. Um, I've always been aware of Muhammad Ali. Um, I just remember footage of him on TV when I was growing up. Um, he often appeared on British television. And my parents talked about this from time to time. Uh, I, I remember hearing both my mum and dad talking about Muhammad Ali in you know fairly positive terms, talking about what an incredible person he was, how impressive he was, not just as a fighter, but as a as a as an individual. Um, he he was such a big personality, and I think such a big personality is quite hard to avoid. So um, I was aware of Ali even from childhood, even though by the time I was growing up, he'd stopped fighting. Uh, my interest in Ali as a boxer is mainly as a result of two things. The first thing is a great documentary, which is called When We Were Kings. When We Were Kings. When We Were Kings. And this is a feature film about uh, Muhammad Ali's fight with George Foreman in 1974, which was called The Rumble in the Jungle. And I'm going to talk about that fight in some detail in a bit. Uh, so when I worked at the HMV Music Store, uh, it was a, a big superstore that sold music and videos. So I used to work at the HMV Music Store on Church Street in Liverpool. I worked there for a year. And when I was working there, I remember that When We Were Kings was actually released on, on video or DVD. And uh, the, they played the movie on repeat every day for about one or two weeks in the store. And I was working in the store full time. It was after my university degree and I was working there during the day and I was playing music in a band in the evening in Liverpool. Um, and so, yeah, they, they played When We Were Kings, this documentary about Muhammad Ali, over and over again uh, during this week. Um, I, I worked there for a year, but there was one week when they just played the film again and again and again. You know the way they play movies in, in stores, you know, on big screens? Now, I used to work on the specialist music and computer games counter, which was quite an interesting place to work because I was selling computer games to some people and I was selling like jazz funk records to other people. It was, it was cool. It was a good, good uh, experience. Um, so I used to work on the specialist music and computer games counter and the screen where they were showing the movie was around the corner and I couldn't see it. But the audio track from the movie was played through speakers above my head all day long. So I heard the audio track from that movie about five times a day, but I couldn't see the screen. So I just worked. And while I was working, I just listened to people describing the fight. And I heard Ali talking over and over and over again while I was working. Um, so I kind of got exposed to this stuff and it kind of you know, I, I managed to really learn the story in quite a lot of detail. And, and the more I learnt about it, the more fascinating it became. The other reason I'm interested in Ali's boxing is because of a book um, called The Fight by Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer was a writer, an American writer who sort of wrote work in the 60s, I guess 60s and 70s. He's kind of part of the beat movement um, his style is fairly similar to someone like Ernest Hemingway 
and also quite similar to Hunter S. Thompson, that kind of thing. He's, he's great. And The Fight is one of my favourite books of all time. So that particular book is an incredibly intense account of the, of the same fight featured in the movie that I just mentioned, uh, The Rumble in the Jungle, uh, between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in 1974. The central chapter of the book is a blow, blow is a is a blow by blow account. A blow by blow account that means like every single punch described. And if you if you give a blow by blow account of something, it means you give a very detailed account of every single detail, every single moment. It originally comes from boxing. A blow by blow account is like uh, a description of the fight with every single punch and every moment described. But now we use a blow-by-blow account to describe other things too. Um, okay, so anyway, the, the book is a uh, the central chapter of the book is a blow-by-blow account of the whole eight rounds of the fight. But the book also describes the entire story around the fight, including the personal and cultural context. Norman Mailer describes his meetings with Ali and his entourage, the atmosphere of the fight, and more. It's so well written. Um, it's subjective personal journalism, which for me brings the subject alive so much. And it's tremendously evocative of the atmosphere and emotion of the fight. I've read it lots of times and it never gets boring to me. Um, I recommend to you both the film and the book. The book can be a bit tricky to read at first because Mailer writes in a fairly complex and very descriptive style, but this really helps during his descriptions of the fight. Okay, So two recommendations for you. The, the feature film documentary When We Were Kings and then the book by Norman Mailer called The Fight. All right. Uh, these days, I like to watch footage of Ali fighting and watch interviews with him. And YouTube is an incredible resource because most of the big moments in Ali's career can be found on YouTube, including his biggest fights and interviews. And I've I've posted a few videos onto the page for this episode. So again, I recommend that you find the page for the episode. Go to teacherluke.co.uk, look in the episode archive, you'll find it. And then you can check out not just the transcript, but you can also watch some of the videos that I've selected for you. Um, for this episode, I'm just going to focus mainly on the aspects of of this story that I know the best, and that's really Ali's boxing. I think if you really want to know about all the other details of Ali's life story and all the facts and figures, names, dates, places, etc., then you can just check Wikipedia, basically. What I want to do is to celebrate this amazing person who we lost this year by just telling you what I know, and mostly that is related to his boxing, and particularly his fight against George Foreman in 1974, which is the subject of that film and that book that I enjoy so much. So now I'm I'm going to I'm going to try and string together all the thoughts and feelings I have about this incredible guy while also trying to tell you what I hope will be a captivating and amazing true story. So let's go. So, um let's begin by having a look at Muhammad Ali's life in general, okay? So I'm going to kind of go through a little biography of Muhammad Ali here. So Ali was many things, okay? He was an Olympic gold medal winning sportsman, a boxer, a poet, a comedian, a philanthropist, um, a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, a campaigner for civil rights in America, a, um, a holder of controversial views on race relations, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood of Elijah Muhammad, 
a sufferer of Parkinson's disease later in his life, and one of the most inspirational and charismatic people of the 20th century. Uh, Muhammad Ali was one of those special people who don't come along very often and who will be remembered for a long, long time. Um, so here is um, here's Ali's basic life story, including the main events up to the 1974 fight with George Foreman. Again, if you want more detail, just you can just Wikipedia it. <laughs> don't often say that, but um, you can in this case. So... Ali was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1942, and he was named originally Cassius Clay. Apparently, he learned to box when he was 12 in order to get revenge on some kids who stole his bike. Uh, so some kids stole his bike. He got mad. He wanted to get revenge, and he trained uh, in boxing at the early age of 12. And apparently, he was talented, and he, he continued to do it. Um, so he started boxing at 12. That's that's pretty early. Clay went on to become a successful amateur boxer and won, at the age of 18, an Olympic gold medal for boxing in 1960 and then went on to become the world heavy, heavyweight, the world heavyweight boxing champion in 1964. He joined the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is a group of black Americans who followed the preachings of Elijah uh, Muhammad, all right, um, and uh, the group he belonged to sought to gain equal rights for black people in the USA. Part of their vision was a segregated USA in which the blacks were given the freedom to set up their own nation, and this was quite an extreme position, really segregation. But it came out of the sense that blacks had no faith in white America, since. Centuries earlier, they'd been forced to leave their land and come to the USA as slaves. Their wish was to be allowed to live and prosper with equal status in the country, but alongside white communities, not part of them. Um, I think it was in 1964 that he changed his name from Cassius Clay, which he said was a slave name given to his ancestors by slave masters. He changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. Um, and although his views on segregation as a solution to the inequalities in society are now considered to be pretty radical and extreme, I think he expressed his ideas so eloquently and with such grace, charm and humour that it was hard not to listen respectfully to what he had to say. I mean, this is a guy who chose to make his points passively through, uh, articulate arguments. Um, in fact, he came. He comes across in his interviews and discussions as a very thoughtful and respectful person, even if I do disagree with some of the views that he expressed at the time. Um, I, I basically believe in integration, but I can sort of understand where these guys were coming from, considering the way that the black American, the Afro-American community had been treated uh, throughout America's founding history. And it wasn't until the mid-60s, really, that, that they started to gain genuine equal, equal rights, even though slavery had been abolished you know, by Abraham Lincoln in the previous century. Um, listening to him speak was fascinating, and he was clearly very intelligent. Ali was an amazing role model for many black American people who were struggling against prejudice and inequality on a daily basis in the USA. And he was very much a symbol of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. 
Uh, that's one of the reasons why he's considered to be a great person and bigger than, than you know, his status as a boxer. In 1967, the USA was at war in Vietnam. And like thousands of young men in the United States, he was drafted into the military. But Ali refused to fight, becoming a conscientious objector on religious grounds. He said it was against the preachings of his religion to murder people, um, specifically people abroad who, as far as he was concerned, hadn't done anything to him. Um, And he was arrested on draft evasion charges, and this caused him to be suspended from boxing for three to four years as a punishment for refusing to fight in the war. So it's pretty ironic, really, that he refused to go and kill people, and um, they took away his... Because of that, they they stopped him from, from, from fighting. So he wasn't allowed to box because he refused to murder. It sounds pretty ironic to me. He was also stripped of all his heavyweight titles. They were taken away from him. Uh, He was also banned from travelling to foreign countries to box because he refused to go to Vietnam to kill for his country. In hindsight, Ali's argument is hard to disagree with, in my opinion. Um, And um, I'm now going to play you just some of the words that he had to say on this subject. Um, And I'm just going to play you a little section of... of, um, a video from YouTube, and you'll first of all, uh, you'll hear Ali just talking about why he, he chose to object to, to the war, why he chose not to fight. Uh, and then in the second part, you'll hear him talking in debate with some students. There's like a scene with a crowd of students and he's debating with them. All the students are white. I think they were from one of the, the, the top colleges in the States. Um, in the first part of this, when you hear Ali, you will hear that he's slurring his words a bit. It might be difficult to understand what he's saying in the beginning part of this recording because he's slurring his words. Um, and I, that's because I think the interview that you hear first was done a bit later on in his career when the symptoms of Parkinson's disease were beginning to show. And one of the symptoms of Parkinson's is that you don't have full control over your muscle movements. And as a result, your speech sounds slurred. So that's why it might be difficult to hear exactly what he's saying at the beginning. Uh, But the second part of the interview is from a debate he had with students earlier on. So he's speaking much more clearly. Uh, So I'm now going to play that to you. The first thing you're going to hear him say is, My conscience won't let me shoot my brother. My conscience won't let me shoot my brother. Okay, so here we go. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother. Uh, Some darker people, uh, some pro-hungry people in the mud a big powerful America, and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. What, I'm going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. Ali more than held his own against students who had a far better formal education than he. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. You my enemy. My enemies are white people, not Vietnam or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs. And you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. So you can hear him saying that you're my opposer. So 
why should he go and fight in Vietnam when, in fact, the people who are sending him to fight don't even stand up for him and his rights uh, at home? Um, so the the first part of that point is, you know, why should I go to another part of the world and murder people who've never done anything against me? They never called me, and he uses the N-word, uh, they never called me nigger, they never enslaved me, they never raped my people, they never set dogs on me, they never lynched me. My my struggle is against white oppressors at home who I've who I have to defend myself against, not some Vietnamese in another country. Um, and you'll see another longer quote um, from Ali on the page for the episode. I'm not going to read through all of that. You can read it yourself if you want to. Again, his actions, this time as a conscientious objector to the war, made him a counterculture icon and one of the most prominent voices of opposition to the Vietnam War from the very beginning. Um, Ali appealed the decision to stop him boxing and the ban was eventually lifted in 1971. Bear in mind that at this point, um, Ali had already claimed the the uh, the world heavyweight uh, title um, in some really dramatic fights, high profile fights. He was already a huge public figure by this point. By the time the ban was imposed in 1967, he was already... Um, you know, a, a massive personality. Um, and uh, so when the, the ban was lifted in 1971, by that time, he, he hadn't boxed professionally for four years during the ban. That's four years when he was in his prime, just lost. Interestingly, because the ban was imposed when he was champion, he never actually lost a heavyweight title fight. Um um, so even though he didn't have the belt, he was still undefeated as a champion when he came out of the ban. He did lose a, uh, his his title later on uh, and claimed it back again. In fact, he won it, I think, on three separate occasions. Um, so I really want to talk about the, his famous fight in 1974 against George Foreman. So I'm going to focus mainly on that in a moment. Um, so we're still talking about Ali's story here. Ali is considered to be one of the greatest boxers ever. And he had an amazing record. He was also an extremely entertaining and engaging fighter. He was known mainly for his speed and his movement in the ring. He used to dance when he was fighting, constantly in movement. His legs would uh, constantly be dancing and moving, which made it extremely difficult to fight against him. Um, so this this made him, um, you know, a well-rounded fighter. He had the dancing, he had the speed, and he also had a number of other different aspects to his his technique. Um, although he did have some weaknesses, specifically a, a lack of power in his punches. Some of the other bo- boxers at his level had incredibly powerful punches, but Ali was not a big hitter really. Um, so he he there was a lack of power in his punches, but he made up for his faults and his weaknesses with his other skills. He, he sort of balanced them out with his amazing speed and technique. Um, now, heavyweight boxers are not usually so light on their feet or fast with their hands, but Ali was, and that's one of the reasons why he was so difficult to fight at. Uh, he, that's one of the reasons why he was so difficult to fight at that level. Um, he has been compared to Bruce Lee, in the way that he used movement, dancing with his feet, his, the speed of his punches, the feints and counterattacks that he used. A feint, that's spelled F-E-I-N-T, feint, is when you pretend to move but then don't. And it distracts um, your opponent and then allows you to attack them in another way. Also, rugby players use feints. 
For example, they they pretend to throw the ball and the defender thinks the ball is going to be thrown, but then they don't throw it and they go in another direction. That's a feint. It's like a little trick to distract your opponent. Okay, So you use feints in boxing as well. You you look like you're going to throw a punch, but you don't, and then the punch comes from another position. So that's a feint. Uh, and counterattacks are when a, an attack comes in from your opponent and you might block it and respond quickly. It's the same in football. It's a devastating technique. Uh, in football, you, what you have is the team will move forwards, like the opposing team will move forwards, pushing all of the players further up the pitch in order to attack the goal. The defending team will defend and uh, prevent the attack and gain possession. And then they're in an advantage because all of the uh, the opposing team members are in the other, in you know, in, in your half of the pitch. So if you can run quickly and pass the ball uh, quickly, you can um, move into their half um, before they can. So it's like the counter strike or a, a counter attack. So it's the same in boxing. So yeah, Ali used these techniques, and in a way, he's been compared to Bruce Lee in the way that he did these things. In fact, Bruce Lee said on a number of occasions that he took a lot of influence from watching Ali boxing. Now, obviously, Bruce Lee didn't only get influenced by Muhammad Ali. Bruce Lee was a, a complete fighter, and he kind of took influence from absolutely everywhere. That's one of the reasons why Bruce Lee is such a was was such an incredible fighter himself. Uh, but yeah, definitely one of the influences on Bruce Lee was Muhammad Ali. Um, apparently, Bruce Lee used to project videos of Ali fighting onto a big screen. He would project the videos onto a big screen, and then Bruce Lee would then shadow Ali's movements following his feet and his hands. Um, so yeah, he, he actually learned f- directly from Bruce, uh, from, from Muhammad Ali. In, in some cases. And you can see the similarity. You know, look at some of the fights of Bruce Lee, particularly the, the famous fight with Chuck Norris. Um, yeah, I think maybe Bruce Lee's one of the only people in the universe ever to defeat Chuck Norris. But you'll see in that fight that Bruce Lee starts to dance and move his feet. And there are lots of counterattacks and feints and, and clever little techniques. Same things that, uh, that, that Muhammad Ali was doing. And apparently... Um, there are, Bruce Lee said some things about uh, Ali um, over the years. In fact, here is a quote from Bruce Lee about Muhammad Ali. And Bruce Lee said this. He said, Everybody says, I must fight Ali someday, Bruce said. I'm studying every move he makes. I'm getting to know how he thinks and moves. Bruce Lee knew he could never win a fight against Ali, though. He said, Look at my hands. That's a little Chinese hand. He'd kill me. So um, so I think that says a lot. You know, Bruce Lee is one of the most respected uh, martial artists and he even learned from Ali. So Ali was not just fast at punching, but he, he was also incredibly good and fast at avoiding being punched. So it, boxing is not just about attacking, it's also about defence. And Ali seemed to be amazing at judging distances at very fast speeds and he would lean back out of the reach of oncoming punches. So looking at some videos, he seemed to be unreachable. No one could touch him. 
And you can see in some videos these big fighters with incredibly heavy punches, people like Sonny Liston and Joe Fraser and George Foreman, who are, have devastatingly powerful punches. But they're swinging at Ali, and Ali just somehow manages to just drift back so cleverly, and the, the punches swing past his nose. It was incredibly skillful at avoiding punches. Amazing reflexes. Um, you can see... Um, you can see some video, in fact, of Ali avoiding punches, dancing and using his reflexes. Um, and you'll, if you're on the page for this episode, you will see that video um, embedded there. And I recommend you watch it. It's very impressive. So one of Ali's catchphrases was, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. It's one of the things he said. And it summed up his style. He was light on his feet, but he could hurt with his sharp attacks. And about his speed... Muhammad Ali famously said this about his, his speed. He said, I'm so fast that last night I turned off the light switch in my hotel room and I was in bed before the room was dark. Um, some of his punches were so fast that they couldn't even be seen. Um, if you blinked, you'd miss it, you know, and some of them didn't appear on film because there was the, the, you know, the way film is basically a series of shutters and some of the punches would actually occur and they weren't captured by the film. For example, there was the punch that knocked out his rival Sonny Liston in 1964. And that's a bit of a legend, that punch. It's known as the anchor punch. And it happened so quickly as part of a counter-attack that Sonny Liston didn't see it coming. And it knocked him down. But neither did most of the audience or the viewers of the fight on TV. It looked like in the middle of the fight, Sonny Liston had suddenly just fell down and, and hit the deck. The fact is that the punch arrived... In apparently in about four one-hundredths of a second. You know that you can divide a second into a hundred parts. Um, the punch actually happened within the first four parts of that second. It was a real blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. But it, it had genuine power, and it was placed right onto the chin of uh, Liston, and, you know, that was all that was needed. Sometimes the well-placed punch at the right time is just as effective as a huge, powerful blow. Um, so, as well as his skills as a boxer, Ali was hugely charismatic. He was a he was a hugely charismatic, lively, and humorous personality. And this is another one of the reasons why he's so loved. Now, um, you know, since English is not your first language, I imagine um, I don't know if you've watched many interview. Um, videos with Muhammad Ali, you might not be aware of what it was like to listen to him speaking. And um, it, you really must, again, check out some of the videos that I've posted here on the page for this episode, and you'll see quite how brilliant he was as a person. Uh, he was incredibly funny and fast and, and articulate. Um, and uh, this is another one of the reasons why he's loved so much. It's not just that he was a great boxer. He was also just a, a, a really um, charming personality. Um, also, he used to write funny poems and conduct his interviews um, in a, a, a humorous way. Uh, in, and he would read out his poems in his interviews and it was frequently hilarious. Um, it seemed that he was as quick with his responses as he was with his punches in the ring. And I recommend you watch some of the videos on YouTube of his funny moments. So um, Ali did win the heavyweight title again in the early 1970s, but he lost it uh, to Joe Fraser. Um, in fact, 
Um, Ali lost a couple of times in that period, sort of after the ban and before the Rumble in the Jungle. He lost a couple of times to his two main rivals, and that was Joe Fraser and Ken Norton. Um, By 1974, people were saying that Ali was past his best, and people wondered if he might never win another heavyweight title and he, he might retire. By 1974, a new challenger had arrived on the scene in the form of George Foreman, who was an extremely impressive fighter, large, very strong, young, and devastatingly effective with his fists. Uh, Foreman beat both of the fighters who who had beaten Ali. Uh, He beat Ken Norton and Joe Fraser, and he went on to become the heavyweight champion. So Foreman, in 1974 was 25 years old and in the peak of fitness and he had smashed Fraser and Norton in just a few rounds each. Ali was 32, past his prime and he'd lost to the two men that Foreman had devastated. Um, So it didn't look good for Ali. In fact, he was the underdog in the fight with George Foreman in 1974. Nevertheless, Ali chose to have a go at beating Foreman to reclaim the heavyweight title. Boxing promoter Don King knew that it would be a great spectacle to put the loudmouth Muhammad Ali, um, the people's champion, against the young, dangerous new champion George Foreman. And Don King managed to raise the money to pay for a huge, high-profile title fight between uh, the two men, in which... um, in which both fighters would be paid $5 million. The only way he could raise the money was to go overseas. And in the end, it took place in Africa, in Zaire, where uh, the dictator president of the time, uh, Mobutu, uh, put up the money for the fight, knowing that it would be good publicity for him and his country. So the setting was Zaire, and the fight was called the Rumble in the Jungle. Okay, Uh, there's all sorts of stuff about the context of that fight happening in Africa. And what's quite interesting is that there is a sense that the um, there's also the the African people, the people of Zaire and how they responded to having this fight in their country. Uh, There's also the sort of political stuff about um, uh, Mobutu, the, the dictator. And there were questions about, you know, uh, what he was doing to his people at the time um, and um, it's very interesting political context to have this big fight right in the middle of um, in terms of the African people uh, it seems that they supported Ali and they they recognised Ali as you know this civil rights leader and they respected him for it they, they saw his humanitarian side and they loved Ali, basically, the, the, the African uh, supporters, really, uh, really loved him. And so they supported him. George Foreman, on the other hand, was he, he wasn't um, so obviously a humanitarian person. He was just an American, really. Sure, he was black, but he didn't really carry with him the, the, the sort of political understanding that Ali had. And so George Foreman was just considered to be like a typical American. And in fact, there were a number of ways in which Foreman sort of um, perhaps accidentally insulted the local African people. He, he lacked a certain amount of cross-cultural understanding. And he, he made a few mistakes that led 
the local African people to sort of disregard him. Um, and, you know, frankly, Muhammad Ali was just such an attractive person that, you know, of course, he, he, he won over the support of the locals. Um, that's, that's another story. But there's, there's all sorts of fascinating things that, uh, to, to be said around, you know, the whole context of the fight happening in Africa and Ali's relationship with the local people and, you know, the, the image that they both had, the, the two fighters had. And the way that that uh, had an effect on the result of the fight that... Um, you know, Ali managed to get the support of the audience. He got the support of the crowd. And you, in fact, got the sense that the whole country sort of saw him as, as some sort of a of a, a, a hero. And they raised him up to this level where he was more than just a man fighting in a ring, that he was also a hero. Um, uh, you can find out more about that in the film documentary, When We Were Kings. There was also a music festival that took place around the time of the fight in Zaire. And some of the biggest names in, in soul music, in black American music, performed there, including James Brown and Bill Withers and other people. And you get footage of the music concert in the movie. And, you know, you see James Brown performing live on stage in Zaire. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, so, so, yeah. The, the setting was Zaire. The fight was called the Rumble in the Jungle. A rumble is another word for a fight, okay? Um, it's also the word for a sound, like the sound of thunder. Uh, well, that's a rumble, but also it's another word for a fight. So this is the story of the Rumble in the Jungle. And this is the fight that forms the basis of that book I love and the film that I listened to and have subsequently seen so many times uh, while working in the music shop. It's a great story and it's a true story. So here we go. Here is the rumble in the jungle. Now, uh, just a note on tenses, verb tenses. A lot of my descriptions of this fight, you will notice, are in present tenses, even though the fight took place in 1974, so obviously in the past. Present tenses are sometimes used when you're telling a story to bring immediacy to events. It brings the events into the present and increases the drama. Past tenses are usually used when you tell a story, but they do create some remoteness in time. So sometimes present tenses are used to bring the story right into the here and now. Okay, so you might notice me doing that a little bit as I tell this story. So let's now talk about the fight. Um, so in the in the training in, in I mean, I've, I've already established that Ali was the underdog and people thought he was, he was past his best. George Foreman seemed to be indestructible. He'd beaten the two guys who'd already beaten Ali. So everyone considered George Foreman to be sort of unbeatable. And he was a devastating fighter. And you could, he was so big and strong. And there's footage of Foreman training before the fight. And it's quite a frightening thing to see. You see George Foreman hitting the heavy bag. That's probably the most famous footage. Foreman hitting the heavy bag and it's a relentless uh, repeated punch into the heavy bag from both sides, the left and the right. These powerful right and left hooks directly, accurately into the same place into the heavy bag. You know the heavy bag that's like the long bag? Uh, usually it hangs from the ceiling. And you have a guy standing holding the bag while the boxer punches it. Well, when Foreman was punching the bag. The guy holding onto it, it lifted him off his feet. The bag swung into the air and the, the guy holding the bag was lifted off his feet. The, the punches were so powerful. And repeated punches create, pushed a big hole in the bag. There was like a hole about the size of, oh, I don't know, about the size of a watermelon in, the, in, this, in this bag. From 
foreman repeatedly punching it. And it would make this incredible slapping sound. Like that. And uh, it's a frightening thing to see. I mean, being punched by one of those could, I mean, that could do serious damage to your body. Apparently, Ali visited George Foreman's training camp and he actually saw Foreman hitting the heavy bag. And um, according to the book, Ali looked pretty scared. And, you know, he, he must have been quite uh, freaked out by, by this. So let's, let's go straight into the fight. Round one. Okay, round one. Imagine the scene. It's actually 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. in the morning. The film took uh, the, the fight took place in the middle of the night in Zaire so that the, t- the, the film could be broadcast on television at the right time in the United States. So it happened in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness in, in Zaire. Um, and apparently the atmosphere was incredibly hot and humid. Um, a, a heavy atmosphere uh, in the stadium. And Ali was the first uh, to arrive. He was the challenger. So he arrived first to great applause. And the crowd, he, you can see this on video, by the way. And I've posted the video on the on the page. You can see the entire fight on YouTube. And so you could watch the, the fight and, and, and try and notice the things I'm describing. So Ali is the challenger. He arrives first to great applause. The crowd loves him. Foreman, George Foreman, waits ages to come out. And this is probably a tactic to unnerve Ali, but it doesn't seem to work because Ali is moving around the ring. He's obviously in the zone. Some people in the crowd boo as Foreman enters the ring. Okay, Foreman arrives um, and some people in the crowd are booing. Boo as he enters the ring. So clearly he's not the popular person. Uh, Then the, the fighters try to psych each other out in the in the few minutes before the fight starts to psych each other out they're using psychology to try to um you know gain an advantage uh foreman is walking around confidently showing off his powerful physique ali starts to uh fight a mental battle with foreman using the crowd against him and ali you can see him in the video is encouraging the the crowd to shout ali bomoye Ali Bomoye, Ali Bomoye. And apparently Ali Bomoye meant, in the local language, meant Ali kill him. So he got the crowd to shout this uh, in their local language. Ali Bomoye, Ali Bomoye. And he raised his fist and they would all shout it. And also Ali, in the warm-up to the fight, was shouting and talking all the time at George Foreman, looking at him in the eyes and shouting at him and talking to him. And this is one of the things that Ali used to do. He would use his 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 wit and his uh, his voice um, and his articulacy to break down his opponent his opponents mentally by constantly talking to them, trash talk the whole time. You can see in the early stages, Foreman is silent and has and has complete faith in himself and in his abilities. So they have their gloves put on in the ring, and there is a moment when they stare at each other very close up. They lock eyes and they stare each other and try and psych each other out. And it's a very powerful moment. Moments before the bell rings for round one, Muhammad Ali has a moment of quiet prayer in his corner. You can see him with his gloves down praying. Everyone in his corner is silently praying. But as that happens, Foreman is bending over, stretching. He's bending over, in fact, as the bell rings. So when the bell rings, Ali turns to approach Ali, uh, sorry, Ali turns to approach Foreman, but Foreman is bending over in his corner, showing his ass to Ali, which is not 
really dignified and not very respectful. And uh, it's just another example of how uh, Foreman was arrogant and disrespectful and Ali was more prepared. Foreman was really sort of overconfident and a bit too calm. I don't think he realised what he was up against. Everyone had underestimated Muhammad Ali at this point. So then the bell rings and Ali is immediately on the offensive, leaping towards Foreman. And Ali begins to fight by dancing like he used to. And so Ali is moving and dancing and he immediately comes into Foreman. But obviously Ali also has to be extremely careful because Foreman is so dangerous with those big, heavy arms and powerful punches. Foreman attempts to start using his technique of cutting off the ring and using his rear hand, his right hand, like a bear's paw to deal with Ali's left jabs. And this is part of his technique. Now, I want to talk to you now about some boxing principles, okay? Just some principles of boxing. Imagine imagine that you're standing in the ring, okay? Imagine that you're you're about to have a fight. You're, you're standing in the ring. Now, what's your body position? Now, you don't stand square to your opponent. You don't stand perfectly uh, square to your opponent. You stand slightly, you know, to the side a little bit, okay? So the, the main thing is that you have a lead hand and a rear hand. One hand leads at the front and the other hand is at the back, okay? So you, you, you sort of lean your shoulder towards your opponent a bit. You don't stand straight, square to your opponent, but you step to the side a little bit so that your shoulder... One of your shoulders is closer to your opponent and one of your legs is closer to your opponent than than the other, you see? So you're sort of standing to the side a little bit. So you've got a lead hand and a rear hand and a lead foot and a rear foot, okay? Usually, if you're right-handed, your lead hand is your left hand, okay? Um, now, you have your left foot forward slightly and the right foot back, the left shoulder forward and the right shoulder back a bit. The left hand is closer to your opponent, that's your lead hand, and the right hand is further away, that's your rear hand, lead and rear, okay? So since the left hand is, is further forwards and the right hand is further back, this means that your left hand can jab forward from the shoulder, okay? The left hand can just jab from the shoulder forward, pam, pam, like that. Now, um, your left jabs can be fast and direct, but they're less powerful, all right? Now, the right hand, the rear hand, is further away. And when, when your right hand punches, it has to come all the way across. It travels a much longer distance, all the way across both shoulders, past your, past your own head, and then um, to connect with the opponent. So it's a lot further. It has to travel a much, far, much further distance. Um, and it comes across your shoulders. And this means that it takes longer to reach your opponent, but it carries a lot more force because it carries a lot of your body weight with it, okay? A powerful rear hand punch can carry your whole body weight behind it if you twist your hips and twist your shoulders behind the punch, okay? So the left hand for jabs, pam, 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 and the right hand for longer punches, okay? So you get sound effects on Luke's English podcast as well sometimes. So you you normally would lead with your left hand, start with the left hand and follow it up with the right hand. Okay? You'd never really lead with the right hand. You know? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't punch first with the right hand. You'd normally pam, pam, pam with the left hand, lead with the left and then follow it up with the right. You don't normally lead with your right hand. This is because it takes ages for the right hand to arrive 
and the po- the opponent can usually see it coming and they can block it and that leaves you dangerously exposed with your right hand forward okay um so usually boxers will do combinations of punches leading with the left that's a left jab uh, a jab with the left followed immediately by a powerful punch with the right and you can jab in different places you can jab into the body to the face and then follow it up with a a a rear-handed punch to the body or to the face so yeah punches can be aimed at the head or the body they can come in a straight line or they can come round the side so that's a hook or they can come from the bottom punches from the side are called hooks punches from underneath are called uppercuts you can also punch over the top of someone's defences too, punch downwards in some cases. Now, part of um, Foreman's strength was that he had an extended rear hand. Normally, your rear hand, your right hand, is held back a little bit, okay? Normally, it's held back, maybe sort of close to your forehead, so you can block punches like that. Foreman actually moved his rear hand forwards a little bit, almost into the same position as his left hand. So they're almost as further forward as his, uh, almost as far forward as his left hand, right? So not not really all the way back, but a bit further forward. And he held his his rear hand far forward in an extended defensive position. And he it looked a bit like a paw, like a the, a bear's paw, if you can imagine, sort of with the palm out a little bit. He'd use that as a defensive sort of extended rear hand as as a defensive technique. Imagine a bear, you know, with its paws facing outwards. He looked a bit like that. Um, And he was brilliant at using that extended rear hand, the right hand, to neutralise the opponent's leading left hand. So if you're fighting against George Foreman, you want to lead with with punches from the left, jabs from your left hand, but Foreman's right hand is is blocking it and preventing it from, preventing you from, from, even throwing left-handed punches because the his his hand is right there blocking and neutralizing your left hand and that's that's really devastating so he could block the jabs from the left or counter the jabs with the right hand sometimes and then attack with those powerful hooks from both sides and he combined this this technique with with the, with his other technique which was cutting off the ring cutting off the ring is about moving in the ring and it involves forcing the opponent into the corners or against the ropes by carefully and steadily stepping forwards and to the side. Now, for example, if the opponent attempts to move around Foreman, uh, Foreman would sidestep, essentially trapping the opponent and reducing the space in which the opponent can move. And then with that extended right hand, cutting off the leading jabs of the opponent, he could basically trap the opponent in exactly the position he wanted, neutralise the opponent with his extended right hand and then just apply his brutally powerful punches uh, to great effect. Often, just a few of those carefully placed punches would be enough to knock the opponent to the floor or unconscious, like he did with Ken Norton, one of the people who'd beaten Muhammad Ali. So cutting off the ring was exactly the sort of fighting style that could work against Ali, because we know that Ali liked to move around. One of his strengths is that he was always in movement, but Foreman was an expert at cutting down the movement of his opponents. Um, Ali and Foreman had never faced each other before, so nobody knew how it would go. Um, 
Unlike Ali's fluid, fast and accurate technique, Foreman's style was not particularly graceful or beautiful. With his extended rear hand and his relentless sidestepping and steady movements forward, Foreman appeared like a bear or like Frankenstein's monster, slowly but inevitably closing in on his opponent before causing untold damage with those powerful arms and huge fists. It wasn't graceful, but it was devastatingly effective. This is what had destroyed the only two fighters to beat Ali previously, Ken Norton and Joe Fraser. Foreman appeared not only to beat them with ease, but smash them to pieces. Um, So yeah, Ali had lost to both of these men, but Foreman had taken care of them in just a matter of minutes. He was in his prime, both physically and in terms of confidence. According to Foreman, he felt invincible before the fight and he was sure he would beat Ali. Uh, This is what Ali was facing and apparently he was scared. Despite all of the bravado, the big talking, he must have been petrified. Just watch the videos of Foreman beating Norton and Fraser. He's like an executioner. Everybody was worried that Ali couldn't win and that he'd get hurt. Also, Ali was past his prime. He was relatively old and he'd already fought some of the best fights of his career. Since his match ban, his legs weren't the same as they used to be. He couldn't dance like he used to. He was heavier than before, but he was still fast. And there were other dimensions to his fighting technique that we hadn't seen yet. Everyone wondered what would happen and how long it would take Foreman to close down Ali. How could Ali escape Foreman? The bell rang for the first round and Ali leapt forward to engage Foreman. And then he did something that nobody expected. Something so reckless and brilliant that nobody could believe what they were seeing and it seemed to work. He started throwing right-hand leads. So a right-hand lead is when a fighter leads with their right hand, which in this case, uh, uh, you know, the rear hand, which in this case was the right hand. This is a high-risk strategy. As I said before, it, it's, a, it's a risky move because it's, it, it takes a long time for that right hand to come across and it leaves you exposed um, and it's very dangerous. But if it works, it can be very deadly because of the power in that right hand. So, yeah. As I said, because the right hand has to travel much further, the other fighter has a lot more time to stop it. However, if a right-handed punch connects, it can do a lot more damage because it carries more body weight. Now, remember that Remember that Foreman's technique was to neutralise the left-handed leads with his extended rear hand, his bare paw. Now, Ali chose to completely avoid this by leading with his heavy right hand Um, taking Foreman completely by surprise. In fact, everyone was taken by surprise. And when Ali started leading with his right hand, going around uh, Foreman and coming in with these powerful right-handed punches right from the beginning, which was like a reckless cowboy move, basically, when he started doing that, um, everyone was shocked and surprised. And you could just hear the audience go wild as these amazing things were happening. And in the first round... Ali managed to hit George Foreman with about 10 or 11 right-hand leads, which is unbelievable. What a shock. Nobody could believe what they were seeing. So if you again, if you watch the video, you'll see that some of the right-hand leads connect perfectly and you can see Foreman's head jerk back quickly from the impact. 
Sweat sprays off his head as the punches land. The crowd goes wild as Manny... As Manny? Who's Manny? I don't know. Uh, That's another story. As Ali, in this case, manages to land so many right-hand punches to George's face. Again, Ali is fast and the influence on Bruce Lee is obvious here. His right-hand punches are expertly executed. He feints with the left hand and then applies the right. He then feints with the right and then strikes with the right. He's playing a guessing game with Foreman. Which hand is going to come next? And time and time again, Foreman keeps being taken by surprise by the right hand of Ali. This is not what Foreman had expected. And he keeps falling for it in the first round, at least 10 times, with a few left hands in there as well. Now, this didn't happen with Norton or Frazier. This took massive amounts of guts from Ali. It was a very risky move, completely unexpected and unpredictable. Only someone like Ali, who was cocky enough, fast enough and unconventional enough, could have done this. What an extraordinary fighter. I think Ali's plan, in fact, was to knock Foreman down in the first round in a way that nobody could have predicted. Again and again, he hits Foreman with the right-handed leads, but Foreman doesn't go down. The punches hit him and you can see that his face begins to puff up, but he's just enraged and he continues to advance on Ali and he hits him with several punishing blows, which must have hurt Ali. Now, Foreman is incredibly powerful and the right hand leads must have put him in a huge rage. Some of the punches that he delivers to Ali look very heavy. One connecting to the left side of Ali's head, another to his heart under Ali's outstretched arm. But Ali doesn't seem affected. And in fact, he's visibly he's visibly talking to Foreman throughout the fight. And he uses the combination of techniques. He's wrestling with him. He holds Foreman in headlocks. He holds his left glove against Foreman's neck, putting him off balance. And the whole time he's talking to him, apparently saying things like, is that the best you can do, George? Come on, hit me with a real punch. And apparently he was saying things like, come on, George, you don't punch, you push. You're just pushing, you're not punching. Uh, And then the round ends. So there are some moments in the corner. um, And uh, uh, I suppose these are the times when, you know, the training, uh, the members of the training team say encouraging words to the boxers. And you can see that Ali whips up the crowd again, getting them to shout Ali Bomoye over and over again. Round two. Ali's plan to knock down Foreman in round one with unexpected right-hand leads hasn't really worked. Despite landing the punches, about 10 of them, Foreman is still standing and he seems okay. Ali starts to take some punishment here. And this is phase two of Ali's strategy. He stops dancing and he goes against the ropes. So to everybody watching, it looks like Ali is going to be slaughtered by Foreman because Ali stops moving and he goes into a defensive position, holding his arms and his elbows. Uh, his, his, he holds his gloves above his head, uses his elbows and his, his arms to protect his body. And he takes a lot of, of punches. And it's quite a sad sight for the audience because Ali is not dancing. He's retreating and he's letting Foreman come to him. And then he's leaning back against the ropes as Foreman starts laying into him with huge, heavy punches to the body and head. But Ali knows what he's doing. It's incredibly brave of him to expose himself to these punches, but it's a calculated move. 
Most accounts of this fight at this point say that Ali went to the ropes, blocked most of the punches, let the ropes take the impact and let Foreman punch himself out, which means to let Foreman exhaust himself from punching. Now, this was part of the plan, but Ali's technique here was a lot more sophisticated than that. And if you watch the, 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 the fight, knowing what's really going on, it is dramatic and it's, it's fascinating to watch. So let's see some of the things that Ali was doing. So first of all, Foreman's heavy punches, which was really the, the main strength of George Foreman, the, those incredibly heavy punches. How did Ali deal with them? Well, basically, he blocks them. He had incredible skill in blocking them. So you can see in the video that he leans back deep into the ropes, ensuring that when Foreman hits him, the ropes take a lot of the force from the punches. Uh, The punches hit Ali and the force is transferred into the ropes. Also, Foreman has, has to lean forwards. So because Ali is leaning all the way back into the ropes, he's forcing George Foreman to lean forwards off balance. And he's stretching in order to try and hit Ali's head. And Ali is so fast that he manages to avoid or block most of the punches that Foreman throws at him. Ali was also a master of absorbing punches. And there were many aspects to Ali's abilities, and he used them all in combination, often highlighting one technique, allowing the other technique to be a surprise. And this is part of what he was doing. In a sense, this was a trap for George Foreman. It was a risky move because Ali. Uh, it was a risky move by Ali because it involved exposing himself to a lot of punishment. But Ali used one of his techniques, avoiding punches and absorbing impacts with body movement. He was a fluid fighter who relied on speed and quick reactions to limit the effects of punches. Now, while it looked to the audience um, like Ali was just shutting down, not dancing, just going to the ropes, essentially letting Foreman attack him. He was actually using his defensive skills to lure Foreman into a trap and then uh, punish him. Foreman had one technique, basically. Use the right hand to prevent left jabs coming around, close off the ring and apply massive swinging punches and uppercuts to maximum effect. And this is how he'd managed to, to, to defeat his previous opponents. And this is basically the only technique that he knew. And so the only thing that Foreman could do was continue doing this. He had one operating procedure and he just he just had to continue applying it. And I think Foreman's plan was, he was probably thinking, if I could just get one of my big punches in, that could, that could end the fight. But he couldn't. He just couldn't connect any because Ali was too deft at avoiding them or blocking them. Um Yeah, and Ali managed to get around Foreman's right hand, that extended bare paw. He He got around that by punching under it or inside it and leading with his right hand, which fighters never do. Also, when Foreman got too close, Ali would hold his neck, pushing him off balance, preventing him from being able to swing properly. He would place his left hand on the back of Foreman's neck and pull his head down, and he would put his weight on Foreman, He'd lean into Foreman, making Foreman carry some of his weight. Ali basically conserved his energy by leaning on the ropes, by leaning on George Foreman, and he realised that stamina was an important factor in winning the fight. Uh, Over time, this exhausted George Foreman. Also, because Ali kept backing away from Foreman, Foreman kept having to move forwards towards Ali. 
which actually gave extra force to Ali's punches and jabs and counterattacks from his defensive position on the ropes. Because Foreman was always moving forward into Ali's punches, this multiplied the damage of Ali's punches, right? Imagine if someone's moving towards you and you punch them, it, the, the impact of the punch is going to be a lot harder. And in the same way, if someone is moving away from you and you punch them, then it's going to reduce the impact of your punches. So Ali used physics like this to uh, to his advantage. Um, also, Ali was using all of his charisma, experience and mental strength against Foreman. He was constantly talking to him, teasing him, breaking down his confidence, breaking down his self-belief bit by bit. Uh, apparently, he kept saying to Foreman, George, you can't punch. You don't punch, you push. Is that the best you've got? Come on, George, I'm your master. You ain't got nothing. You've met your match. You'll see you've stepped into the ring with your master. You're out of your depth, George. Your punches aren't hurting me. And you can see in the fight, I think probably around round five or six, there's a moment where he just sort of stops attacking George. And he says, OK, George, come on. Let's let's see what you got. Do your best. And then George would... He gave him time to swing and punch at him, but the punches just didn't do any damage. And Ali's going, is that the best you can do? Is that all you've got? Um, it must have been de- devastatingly effective. Uh, it must have seriously affected Foreman's state of mind, causing him to be distracted, unfocused and frustrated. It probably would have chipped away at his confidence, sowing seeds of self-doubt that uh, you just can't afford to be thinking in that situation. And when you view the fight from this point of view, you realise that Ali was in control of the whole thing. He used Foreman's strengths against him and he dominated Foreman mentally. You can see in the video the moments when Ali is teasing Foreman and shouting comments at him and Foreman is momentarily distracted in some uh, at some uh, moments and Ali takes the opportunity to strike lightning fast punches that are carefully aimed Foreman is almost blind to these punches as he keeps bearing down on Ali like Frankenstein's monster. Also, Ali has won the support of the audience, all of whom are willing him on to succeed and willing Foreman to fail. When two fighters are so evenly matched, the mental conditions will give you an edge. In fact, I think in sport, it's all in the mind. So much of it is about having the will and the succeed... Uh, what? The, it's So much of it's about having the will to succeed and the motivation. It's a bit like that song, The Eye of the Tiger. You know the one? Um, George Foreman's determination and single-mindedness in the ring in the fight is becoming a weakness as he keeps walking towards what he thinks is a target, backing away, or uh, Ali helpless against the ropes. In fact, Ali keeps popping off the ropes to apply punches to Foreman's head. They're not super powerful blows, but they are accurate and they accumulate and Foreman is moving towards them. However, Ali's strategy took time and Foreman was young. He had a lot of strength and stamina. He was also full of confidence and self-belief, which took a long time for Ali to drain away. And Ali had to take a great deal of punishment on the ropes over many rounds. In fact, there were times when Ali was just taking punches, absorbing them, doing his best to limit their force and not managing to get many counter punches in on Foreman. It looked like Ali was being destroyed, but it was a long-term plan. 
Eventually, after a number of rounds of this technique, drawing Foreman in, deflecting and avoiding the punches, wrestling him off balance, constantly talking to him and breaking his nerve with with comments, and managing to strike a few carefully placed jabs and punches, while also taking a, a few punches to the body, Foreman got tired. It's hard to keep punching as hard as you can while defending yourself, especially in hot, heavy, humid conditions. As an example, right... Try holding a four kilogram weight straight out in front of you for as long as possible. Like maybe try holding your laptop computer with one hand in directly in front of you with an outstretched arm for as long as possible. Just stand up, hold something heavy in front of you for as long as you can. How long can you do it? Now, if it's four or five kilograms, I would be surprised I don't think there are many laptops that are that heavy. But anyway, some heavy object. I'd be surprised if you managed to hold that thing in front of you for more than about five minutes. If you did it for 10 minutes, then that is very impressive and you're extraordinary. You might be an athlete or a boxer even. Now, a lot of people can't hold a five kilogram weight, you know, with an outstretched arm in front of them while standing up for more than about two minutes, to be honest. Now, think of the last time also that you had to run for an extended period of time. Now, I know I have a lot of runners who listen to this, but if you don't run regularly, imagine running at top speed. Imagine sprinting for about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, Now, that's actually quite a long time to run at top speed, but imagine you're running as if a bear was chasing you or something. You're running and you can't stop. You'd be knackered. Imagine you'd be absolutely exhausted after about 15 minutes of of high pressure running. You know the feeling. You know that feeling when you've you you know you've just got no wind left in your body. You're experiencing pain in your legs and in your chest, and your lungs just can't take in in, in enough air quickly enough. You're completely out of breath. Imagine you've just sprinted up a hill for 10 minutes. You know that feeling. And you, your your chest hurts, your legs are wobbly. It's an awful feeling. Now imagine doing both of those things at the same time, holding the weight and running, while also defending yourself against some very powerful fast punches from perhaps the best fighter in the world. Now that's an idea. It's just an idea of the challenge faced by both of these guys during the fight. So Foreman got tired. He punched himself out and he lost focus. And also... Eventually, his guard, you know, that his hand, his defensive position on his hands started to drop a bit. And Ali exploited that. Even though he was also exhausted, he came off the ropes and he applied lots of fast, well-placed punches to Foreman's head. And the end of the fight was quite beautiful in an odd way. Um, Ali applied his excellent footwork by coming off the ropes as Foreman's guard dropped, stepping to the side forcing Foreman to turn to his left, putting him off balance, uh, while Ali was applying a combination of punches with both hands, his jabs with the left setting up harder punches with the right, and Ali, as Ali stepped to Foreman's right, and as Foreman began to turn to his left, he lost his balance and he began to fall. Ali had hit him with a combination of fast punches and then Foreman began to fall while they were turning, slowly yet inevitably falling towards the ground like a huge tree that had been cut down but still hadn't fallen yet. A tree, you know, which had no way of staying upright. 
uh, a tree which was inevitably going to fall. You know, like, you know, when uh, lumberjacks or whatever chop down a tree and there's that moment where the tree is still standing, but it started to fall and it slowly but inevitably comes down. It was like that. The whole time that Foreman was turning and falling, Ali had another punch ready. He had his hand cocked for a punch, but he held it back, ready to strike, but he held it as Foreman turned. And with this strange kind of slow beauty, Ali just let Foreman fall to the ground, turning around with him without hitting him again. And Foreman's fall seemed to be in slow motion. And yet it had an, in, an inevitability, I can't say that word, it had an inevitability to it. Ali let it happen and just seemed to guide him round, letting him fall as the big man eventually crashed to the ground. And as the old saying goes, the harder they come, the harder they fall. So what Ali had done was use his intelligence against Foreman. And when you realise what happened in the fight, how Ali won it, then you realise what an amazing achievement it was. In the end, Ali was a far more sophisticated and complex person and he outclassed Foreman. As a test of character, Ali had passed with flying colours and it's one of the reasons why he is such a legendary figure today. He demonstrated extreme strength of character, not just physical ability. He dominated Foreman and proved himself to be the greatest. Now, what about George Foreman? He lost. This is the guy who thought he was un- unbeatable, but he, he was beaten by his master in this fight. Now, here's what Foreman had to say about the fight and about Ali. I'm going to play you another little bit of video, uh, like audio footage here. This is from um, CNN, and it's a video on YouTube. And um, you'll hear Foreman talking about how confident he was after so easily beating all his other opponents in previous fights, but then what happened uh, when he lost to Ali. So this is George Foreman. All suddenly, everybody I hit, if I missed him almost, they would be knocked out. So I thought I was the toughest thing ever invented. I was going to be the best heavyweight that ever uh, existed. One punch of mine was, was equal to 20 of any other heavyweight champ. I thought. Mm. So getting up to Zaire, getting ready to fight Muhammad Ali, I thought this will be a matter of just a little exercise. I'll probably knock him out in three rounds, two, three, maybe three and a half rounds. Mm. That was the most confidence I've had in my whole life. It's interesting. There are some analysts who look back at that match and they say um, when they watch the kind of um, the fight that took place, they said that uh, Muhammad Ali he delivered 12 right leads. Um, that's something you never do to a champion fighter because it's almost like it's an insult. It, it leads you open. It's almost like an easy punch back. Um, what do you think his strategy was, and, and were you surprised by that? When you think about all, what, how many right leads they say he, he landed or threw, it was, I felt like he threw maybe 150. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel those punches. I had just underestimated one of the greatest fighters of all time. That's all there is to it. I underestimated him. And I figured he could hit me with all he want. I'm still going to knock him out in a few minutes. But those punch and the power and, and they started to accumulate. And it wasn't long before I was on the floor. And then what happened? In the most devastating thing in the world to lose the coveted heavyweight championship of the world. I'd worked so hard to get it. Then you could hear the referee counting one, two, and he doesn't, you really, your life is going to change once more mm. from all of this confidence and to devastation. 
It happened in a split second. By the count of 10, my whole life was devastated. Wow. So he said there that his whole life was devastated and he's not exaggerating. Apparently after this fight, Foreman had a huge nervous breakdown. Essentially, the loss completely ruined his confidence to the point where he lost all sense of who he was up to that point. He described the experience as like falling into a huge black hole in which he stared death in the face. And this happened to him, you know, sometime after the, the fight. This, he just sort of went into a, a, a crisis, a personal crisis. The previous George Foreman essentially died after that experience, according to him, not physically, but mentally or personally. It took him quite a long time to come back and piece his life together following this defeat. And this previously unstoppable fighter had been seriously shaken by his defeat. Foreman retired from boxing a few years later. And over the following 15 to 20 years or so, he completely turned his life around. And later in the 90s, I think, he came back as a hugely successful businessman. He became a multimillionaire, in fact, by selling his patented lean, mean, fat-free grilling machine, which was a grill, a grilling machine for cooking meat. Uh, a grill which cooks meat and drains the fat away while it's being cooked. And the, the grilling machine is a, is a massive success, in fact. Um, now he's a very self-assured, charismatic and interesting man and a very good public speaker as well. I think he became a born-again Christian, actually. He found God and apparently that's what saved him. Um, and, you know, that's what worked for him. In fact, it's fascinating to hear him describe his experience of having a breakdown after the fight and then finding God. And I think this is an anecdote that he has told many, many times in his life. I'm going to play that to you now from another YouTube video. Here he talks about being filled with, like, powerful negative feelings after his loss to Ali. He was filled with hatred, filled with uh, with revenge, feelings of wanting revenge, uh, feelings of paranoia. Uh, essentially, his ego couldn't handle the defeat and he kept making excuses for the defeat, you know, saying that his water had been poisoned or whatever. He was trying to find excuses, but he couldn't ultimately avoid the fact that he'd just been beaten. And ultimately, it caused a breakdown in his personality, which led to a remarkable spiritual experience in which he became a born-again Christian so this is him describing that breakdown and the moment where he found God, essentially. I'd come home and I was angry for a long time. I figured I'd been betrayed by my managers. I'd been given things in my water, the ropes were loose. I had all the kind of excuses that filled me with hatred and revenge. I felt like I'd lost everything, not just the championship of the world, but I'd lost myself as a man. Foreman attempted a comeback, but that ended in 1977. I fought Jimmy Young in Puerto Rico in March of 77. After the decision, Jimmy Young is the winner. I couldn't believe that. I went back to the dressing room, and as I was walking back and forward to cool off, I started thinking, who cares about a stinking boxing match when I got money, I got cars? I said, I could, re I could retire now and die. Die. Couldn't fight it. It just started to dominate my conversation. I realized I was about to die in a dirty old dressing room with all those homes I had. Right within my thoughts, I heard, a, I heard a voice say, you believe in God, why are you scared to die? So I tried to make a deal with the voice. I said, I'm still George Foreman. I can box and give money to charity and for cancer. And the voice answered me right back, I don't want your money, I want you. 
And I remember tears coming down because I knew that was it. My leg gave out of me. And I said, y'all, I'm fixing it. Before I could say another, I died, I was gone. Within a split second, over my head, under my feet was just nothing. I looked behind me and I seen, I saw everything I'd ever worked for crumble, like burn a piece of paper and it stands and you touch it and it crumbles. I was dead. Smelly old death, I, that's horrible smell that goes along with it. I just got mad. So I don't care if this is death, I still believe there's a God. I just didn't believe in religion. When I said that, a gigantic hand just reached in, nothing, hopelessness, no more, and pulled me out. And I was alive in that dressing room again. Evidently, they had picked me up off the floor, and I saw blood coming down my forehead. And I hadn't been cut from the boxing match, but I saw it. My masseur, Mr. Fuller, I said, move your hand, he's bleeding where they crucified him. And I started screaming, Jesus Christ was coming alive in me. And I fought eight men to get in the shower and started screaming, I'm clean, born again, hallelujah. They strapped me down there in an ambulance. Uh, and I said, you just witnessed a miracle and you won't believe it. When they rushed me to intensive care, I lost a boxing match, but I was where I wanted to be in life. And I've been telling that story since. Right. Um, in fact, George Foreman came back into boxing in the 90s and he actually won the heavyweight champion. He's, I think he's still the oldest fighter to ever win a heavyweight champion. He was in his 40s when he, he won the heavyweight champion in the 90s. Um, and yeah, so there you go. Now, as for Muhammad Ali, well, actually, immediately after the referee counted out Foreman back in Zaire, uh, after the, the, the fight. Immediately after the referee had counted out Foreman and Ali was announced the winner, the ring was filled with people who jumped in to congratulate him and celebrate. Apparently, Ali actually fainted in the middle of the ring. That's fainted, F-A-I-N-T-E-D. That's when you pass out. Apparently, he fainted in the middle of the ring, but he was resuscitated. But he was the world champion again, and he had proved that he was truly the greatest. But he had taken serious punishment, and apparently for weeks or months, even after, even you know, weeks or months after he after the fight, he was suffering from the damage to his body. I imagine he was in extreme pain for a long time and could hardly move. Imagine being punched in the kidneys by George Foreman for eight rounds. Ouch. Um, so he was the champion and, you know, it, it was extraordinary that he'd managed to come back uh, like that. And, you know, it, it sort of brought new levels of, um, uh, it brought new dimensions to the man that uh, we realised that there was a lot more to him than we'd expected, um, even more than we'd seen before. So this is an important part of the legend of Muhammad Ali. What happened next, actually, was that an even bigger fight was set up with even bigger stakes. At least $5 million were offered to both the fighters in another international location, this time in Manila in the Philippines. Uh, and this fight was arranged for the next year, 1975, and was to be between Ali and his old rival, Joe Frazier, the man who had previously defeated him. Frazier was Ali's old rival, and the thriller in Manila became perhaps even more dramatic dangerous and incredible than the rumble in the jungle. In fact, this fight was perhaps the most dangerous moment that both fighters had ever experienced. Ali described it as the closest thing to death that he ever experienced, and it pushed both men right to the very limit of their lives. But that's another story for another time. Um, and I might do a sequel to this called uh, the, Thriller, the Thriller in Manila at some point. Now, as we know, Later on, 
So, okay, after the after these fights in the 70s, Ali actually continued to fight up until the end of the 1970s and the, the beginning of the 1980s. Um, and um, now, there, you know, there are some questions as to whether that was necessary and whether he should have retired earlier. Some people point at the entourage that he had around him, the people around him who sort of uh, pushed him into the ring in order to make money. Um, there are questions about that and, you know, lots of questions have been raised about whether he should have continued to fight into his 30s in the 1970s. Um, but it's sad, really, what happened uh, to Ali in the 80s, because as we know, Ali was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in the early 1980s. And it's it's frankly very sad what we all saw happen to him. Um, his speed was gone. His fast talking was gone. What was left of the champ was a man debilitated by his illness. And it was just incredibly sad to have the man taken away from us, just like it's sad for the loved ones of anyone affected by Parkinson's. And I know because I have several people in my family who are affected by the disease. Um, we're still, you know, on earth here. We're still trying to find a cure uh, or find more effective treatments for Parkinson's. And I just want to make an appeal, in fact, at this point in the podcast, I want to make an appeal to you um, now and to ask you to please consider making a donation to a Parkinson's charity. Um, and the one that I'm going to mention is Parkinson's UK. That's a UK-based charity which funds research and care programmes for Parkinson's sufferers, and they do very good and very important work. I'm sure that there are also local charities where you are for Parkinson's as well. Now, Parkinson's, I mean, just in the UK, Parkinson's affects one in 500 people in the United Kingdom. There's no cure. We still haven't found a cure for it, but treatments can make a big difference to the lives of the people who are affected by it. So please consider making even a small donation because Parkinson's is no joke. Visit www.parkinsons.org.uk parkinsons.org.uk or just search for Parkinson's charities in your area. So Muhammad Ali has raised awareness of Parkinson's around the world. I say has raised, it's probably better to say Muhammad Ali raised awareness of Parkinson's around the world. So I thought it would only be appropriate to mention the charities uh, here in the podcast as well, which are doing great work and need everyone's support. By the way, we still don't know if boxing is what caused Ali's Parkinson's. It's very easy to make the link to make the connection that he boxed and then he got Parkinson's and obviously the boxing caused the Parkinson's. But in fact, there isn't conclusive evidence to suggest that it's true. Now, while boxing definitely causes brain damage to people, it's not necessarily the cause of Ali's Parkinson's disease. We just don't know. But a lot of people think that it is. We don't know, really. Anyway, I don't want to end this episode on a sad note. Ultimately, Muhammad Ali was a truly great man who was bigger than boxing. He was an inspiration to people and he was someone who will always be remembered. He was opinionated, articulate, charming, funny, charismatic, skillful, unpredictable and very entertaining. And I think um, as a little tribute to Ali, I'm just going to play again a few more words from George Foreman, who um, later on in, in life became very close friends with Ali. In fact, he described him as a brother. Um, so 
I'm just going to play a little descript, a, a little uh, section from another YouTube video in which uh, George Foreman describes Muhammad Ali, and I think it's quite a an appropriate um, description. Muhammad Ali, I could describe him best during the even the '60s was beautiful. You saw him on television; there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street. He was a beautiful thing to see. What a phenomenon. You had to see him, even if you pulled against him, you wanted, to be a, you wanted to be a part of it. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. So those are the words of George Foreman there. Now, you you must see Muhammad Ali in action. So please do visit the page for this episode where you will see uh, a selection of videos, including, first of all, a, an amazingly fascinating and brilliantly written analysis of Ali's fighting technique. So if you're interested in the boxing, you can actually see a video which explains very clearly uh, with text on the screen and footage, slow motion footage of Ali fighting. It explains and demonstrates clearly how he fought against George Foreman in, in the fight that I described. You can watch the entire Rumble in the Jungle fight um, with commentary by David Frost. Um, you can see Ali having an intelligent discussion uh, on American television in 1968 uh, and various other things. And uh, it's also just some funny moments with, with Ali and you'll see how funny and entertaining he was. Um, so I'm not playing any anything else now. That's the end of the episode. I look forward to, leaving, to, to reading your comments. Thank you very much for listening to Luke's English Podcast. And um, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to me talk about Muhammad Ali at some length. I hope that uh, you've learnt a few things about him and that you've learnt a few things about boxing and also that you've picked up some language or that essentially you've just enjoyed listening to the sounds of English and that you've enjoyed me describing um, this amazing person. Thank you very much for listening. I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 That's when that little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky came up and stopped Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill me. But he hit harder than George. His reach was longer than George. He was a better boxer than George. And I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sonny Liston. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaws been broke, been lost, knocked down a couple of times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. Fast. Fast. Fast! Last night I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast! Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are gonna bow when I whoop him. All of you! I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. 
Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humor and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.